Amen. If you have your Bibles, take them and turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And by the way, if you do not have a Bible, there are copies on that back welcome table. Somebody will grab one and give it to you so you can have one this morning and follow along with us. And you can take it home. It's our gift to you. Uh, If you do not have a Bible, go ahead and take one that's on that back welcome table and take it home and uh, read through the passage that we're going through this morning. Read through it again so that you can see the glories of what we will study this morning. Jonathan Edwards said that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most joyful event that has ever come to pass. And I agree with him. It is the best day in the history of the world because we are here to celebrate a man who died but did not stay dead and will never die again. But I wonder if you're here this morning and you wonder if that is true. I wonder if you find that a little bit hard to believe, maybe a little bit outlandish, maybe a a fairy tale, maybe a little bit too uh, fanciful and, and fantasy. If so, I'm so glad you're here this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you believe in the resurrection. You believe that this is true, but somebody that you know struggles to believe that this is true. I'm so glad you're here this morning because maybe you will be able to hear things that you can encourage your friends and family and neighbors with. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, I absolutely believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but I really don't understand why that's such an important thing, why that is a big deal in my life. I don't understand how that changes anything. I'm so glad you're here because this morning I want to ask two simple questions and Lord willing, answer them from this text. I want to ask, number one, did the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happen? Did this event actually happen? Is this just a tall tale, a legend, something that has grown over time, but it actually didn't occur the way that we think it occurs now? Did it really happen? Second question, if it did, what does it all mean? If it did, how does it change my life? How does it impact my life today? So did this really happen? And if it did, does it change anything? I think we'll find both of the answers to that, to those questions in Matthew 28. Let's read this chapter together. Matthew 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred because an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid because I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified, but he is not Here, because he is risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them. And he greeted them. 
And they came up to him and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee and there they will see me. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, you are to say, his disciples came by night and they stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and they did as they had been instructed. And... This story was widely spread among the Jews and is even to this day. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Father, I pray that we would be filled with awe this morning at the resurrection of your Son, the beauty of the gospel would just pour forth from your word into our hearts that we would receive, that we would glory in our Savior who has risen from the dead, who is alive forevermore, and who is coming back again to take us home. So Father, be pleased to show us Christ. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law, and Jesus, be exalted in our midst. We pray in your name. Amen. Matthew says, behold. He writes that word behold four different times in this chapter. Look at this. Fix your eyes on this. Pay attention to this. He wants us to see the beauty of what's happening and not miss it. R.C. Sproul used to tell the preachers that were in his preaching class, whenever you get up to preach, as you're studying the text, find the drama that's in the text and then preach that drama. And then he would say, if you preach the gospel, you always have drama ever before your eyes. We have drama before our eyes. We need to behold the glory of God. And so as we answer these two questions, Did this actually happen? And what does it all mean? I want us to walk through this text and see the drama, feel the drama, experience with the women, with the disciples, what they would have felt on that Easter morning. Verse one, after the Sabbath, after the Sabbath, Jesus died on Friday 3 p.m. He breathed his last, committed his spirit to his father. He was taken off of the cross. He was placed into a tomb before the sun went down on Friday. So his body was in the tomb one day on Friday. He was there all day Saturday, the Sabbath. And he was there Sunday. And then when dawn came, he rose from the dead. Three days as he had prophesied. But he rises from the dead on Sunday, not Saturday. He rises from the dead, not on the Sabbath, 
The Sabbath was the holy day for all of Judaism, but he, he changes the holy day. Now, Sunday is the holy day because Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week after the Sabbath. This is why Sunday's the best day that there is. This is why I love Sunday. This is why I wish tomorrow was Sunday. I love Sunday. Jesus chose a new day because he's creating an entirely new era because of what he does as he rises from the dead. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. These two women are showing up to look at the grave, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. I love the other Mary, always in the Bible. She's the other Mary. And she doesn't seem to have a problem at all being called the other Mary. We're going to meet them in heaven. Hey, this is Mary Magdalene. Oh, hi, Mary. And I'm the other Mary. It's just always the other Mary. They've been present for everything that's occurred. If you go back to Matthew 27, verses 55 and 56, they've been there for the crucifixion. They've been there for the burial. They've been there for Jesus being wrapped in linen cloths. They've been there for all of it. So great was their love for Jesus that no threat whatsoever would keep them or dissuade them from being with Jesus at every moment from his death to his burial, even now to his resurrection. They are so full of grief, but they want to be with their savior. They want to embalm his body. They want to put spices on his body. They want to care for him in a way that they were not able to do on Friday because it was done with such haste before the sun went down. And so they come to look. At the grave, end of verse one, what do they expect to see? They expect to see what they saw at the end of Friday, a stone rolled in front of a tomb, guards positioned around that tomb. But what do they see? Verse two, behold, a severe earthquake. Matthew writes in Greek, a seismos megas. This is a severe earthquake had occurred because an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven and had come and rolled away the stone and sat on it. So what are these women going to see? They're going to see the stone rolled away. They're going to see the squad of soldiers passed out. They're going to see an angel sitting on this stone. The guards had already seen the angel. Verse four, the guards shook for fear of this angel and become like dead men. They shook. That's the exact same root word for seismos. The earthquake shook megas greatly. And the guards shook with fear. It's very interesting to note that these soldiers were positioned at the tomb because of the religious leaders. You guys remember Matthew chapter 27, the Jewish leaders after Jesus had died, they asked Pilate for a squad of soldiers to guard the tomb. Why? Because they remembered that Jesus had said, I'm going to rise from the dead. The religious leaders, leaders who murdered Jesus believed that he could potentially be raised from the dead. They believed more than his own disciples did. And so they position guards. They want to make sure that this does not happen. Just think about that assignment given to the guards. If you ever feel useless, if you ever feel like somehow you are not doing a good job at whatever you're doing, you've never done as useless of a job as these guards have done. Think about their position. Think about their assignment. Go stand in front of a tomb that perhaps the dead guy inside will rise from the dead and you should stop him. 
Can't stop that. There's no way that's going to work. This is absolutely crazy. And yet, they don't believe it's going to happen, these guards. So they must have thought this is the easiest assignment I've ever been given. I'm just going to go stand guard over a dead man's tomb. The worst that you could possibly expect is that maybe the women are going to show up and you say, hey, get out of here. The disciples show up. Hey, get out of here. They had been trained in how to handle these situations, but no Roman guard had ever been trained in how to handle an angel showing up. And that's exactly what happens. And that's why they fall like dead men. There's such rich irony in this text. Those who are sent to guard a dead man's tomb become like dead men themselves, while the dead guy in the tomb is very much alive already. So beautiful. But the angel didn't show up for the guards. The angel showed up for the women. Verse five, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. The women are terrified because as we see in verse three, the angel's appearance is like lightning and his clothing is white as snow. The glory of God is radiating. The holiness of God is radiating off of them. And so they say, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. This is the very first thing that you learn in angel school in heaven. You learn the phrase, do not be afraid, right? Because that's what you always say to humans. Humans are terrified of angels because they are radiating the glory of God. And so this angel says, do not be afraid because God has brought peace to sinful humans. You do not need to be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here. He's risen just as he said. There's a little mild rebuke in there, just as he said. He told you this is what was going to happen. I love this angel. I absolutely love this angel. We're told that he rolls the stone away and sits on it. I don't know if that was the assignment given to him from the Lord. I don't know if God said, sit on the stone. I like to think that God said, roll it away and then do whatever you want to do. And he chooses, I want to sit on it. I want to sit on it. Just picture the women showing up at the tomb, this brilliant angel sitting high on this stone that's been rolled away and just going, I did this for you, right? I did this, this, this was me. I just think of the joy. How many hundreds of thousands of angels are there? We don't even know, we can't even count. Think of the joy when God says, hey you, I want you to go down. I want you to announce. I want you to roll away the stone. What was this angel thinking? Such a glorious task. And he says, he's not here. He is not here. He's risen just like he said. Why didn't the women believe that Jesus was going to be raised from the dead? I think one of the reasons why is they saw the amount of suffering that Jesus went through and it seemed to destroy any chance of his word coming true. I wonder for you this morning, have you been through a trial or a difficulty or suffering that has brought you to a place where you say the same thing? I know that God said this would work out for my good, but it's just too bad. It's too awful. It's too filled with pain and despair and suffering. And you're struggling to believe just like these women. 
If you are, this text is such good news for you because it tells us that no matter how small your faith might have become, God will always act on his promises, not dependent on your action or your faith. That's why the stone has been rolled away, not to let Jesus out, but to let the women in and to show them my promises still stand, even though you have not believed it. God is faithful. Come see the place where he was lying. He's not here, but come see. He was here, but he's not here anymore. And go, verse seven, go quickly. This seems like a very unnecessary command because you don't walk away from this, right? You don't just go, well, that was interesting. Let's keep going about our day. You're going to run. Go quickly. Tell his disciples. Tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. He's going to go ahead of you into Galilee and you will see him there. Behold, I have told you. So they did what the angel said. They left quickly, fear and great joy. And they ran to report it to his disciples. And while they're going back to the upper room to speak with the disciples, verse nine, behold, Jesus met them. My Bible says, and greeted them. Some of your translations might say, and said hello or something to that effect, gave them a greeting. It's literally spoke hello to them, said hello to them. I love this because if there is something that you would think that the Savior is going to say upon first meeting these women, it's probably not, hi. So all he says, as they run and they see Jesus, I don't know if they're doing one of those cartoon things where they're running as fast as they can and a cloud of dust is behind them and they go right past him and they come back. Is this Jesus? And he goes, hi, it's me. Blown away. Wait a second. This is the risen Christ. They fall down and they worship him and they grab hold of his feet. This isn't a vision. They're not seeing a ghost he is physically raised from the dead. This is a body that can eat fish, that can cook a meal, as John tells us. I'm so struck here by the unglamorous nature of this appearance. Again, picture in your mind what you think, if you were to write the story, what do you think Jesus is going to look like when he rises from the dead? He's going to be blazing with glory. He's going to be glowing gold and yellow. He just looks like a human in fact, the other Marys thought he was a gardener. And he just, with a common greeting, says hello. And then he says this, verse 10. Don't be afraid. Go and take my word to my brethren. My brethren, I love this. Take my word to my brothers. Those who had deserted him those who had left him, those who had denied him. He says, they're my brothers and I love them and I want to see them again. He could have easily said, go take my word to those losers. Go take my word to those fools. With such grace, he says, they're my family. Oh, how he loves us. Take my word and go give it to my brothers and they will see me in Galilee. If the women were running before from the tomb to the upper room, 
Now they are sprinting faster than you've ever seen anyone sprint because they want to bring this news to the disciples. So my first question is, did this really happen? Did this really happen? Is this a tall tale? Is this Paul Bunyan that's grown out of potentially some historical reality, but it's become this fable? I think there's four lines of evidence. Let me answer that with four lines of evidence that you've seen in this text. Number one, the women. Who does Matthew and, by the way, all the other gospel writers as well, they all say that the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection are whom? It's always the women. The women are the first witnesses of the resurrection in all of the gospels. The testimony of women back in that day would not even be admissible into a court of law. So if you are going to try and make a case, let's pretend for a moment that this is all being made up by Matthew. This did not actually happen. And he's trying to make this up to convince us that it actually did happen. He would never have used women as the first witnesses to the resurrection because their testimony would have been instantly thrown out. In fact, if you're wanting to prove the resurrection, there would have been a lot of pressure to leave the women out of the story and be the, uh, the, the first witnesses would have been the men. Not only are the first witnesses women, but the first eyewitnesses to Jesus himself, the resurrected Christ himself, are the women. What a sweet, beautiful sense of honor that the angel speaks to the women and Jesus appears to the women first. What a beautiful, what, what precious glory is seen in the women being the first eyewitnesses. Second, second line of evidence, look at the guards. The guards report what had happened. They are eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And they have to report this cover-up, verses 11 through 15. Notice, by the way, the cover-up does not include anything about the tomb being full. No one has ever said that the tomb was not empty. That would have been the easiest way to say, no, he didn't rise from the dead because, look, there's a body in the tomb. But nobody has ever said that the tomb was not empty. The tomb has always been empty after Jesus rose from the dead. The question is, how did it get to be that way? And so the solution that the religious leaders have is, well, his disciples stole the body. But notice how they have to say it. Verse 13, the disciples came by night and stole the body of Jesus while we were asleep. First question, how do you know what happened when you were asleep? This is a very foolish statement. Oh, I know exactly what happened when I was sleeping. No, you couldn't have any idea what happened when you were sleeping. This is a conjecture, but you have no hard proof and evidence that this actually happened because you say you were sleeping. They have to be paid off because they know this is such a ludicrous statement. All this further verifies that Jesus actually did rise from the dead because they're going to such great lengths to try and cover it up. You have the women, you have the guards. A third line of evidence is the timing. This is a very important one. The timing of Matthew's writing. You can see it there in verse 15. They took the money and they did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day, to the day of Matthew writing, right? Matthew is saying, this is still being circulated today. Meaning what? Meaning Matthew wrote his gospel not long after these events actually took place. 
Matthew wrote not even 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. So it hasn't had time to develop into a tall tale, to develop into a fable or a legend. I always tell my students in my Bible class here at Heritage, I always tell them, look, if the, if the Bible were written after the generations of the events that had happened, I probably wouldn't be a Christian. I probably wouldn't be a Christian because if the Bible were written outside of the generation when the events happened and all of the eyewitnesses that are there to corroborate whether these actually did take place or not, then maybe it's all made up. Maybe it's just grown. Maybe it's that fish story where you actually caught a fish this big, but when you start telling the story, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. But that can't be true if these gospels are written in the exact same generation of the events because the claims are absolutely ridiculous. Jesus broke bread and fish and gave it and fed 5,000 people. That does not seem possible. But we know where it happened. It's recorded for us in the gospels where it happened. You can go to where it happened. So you're reading the scroll of Matthew. You're reading the scroll of Mark. You're reading the scroll of Luke. And you're going, that does not seem possible. And you can go visit that city and you can ask, was anybody here when that happened? And the people are still alive because this is written in the same generation. And they can say, oh, I was there. I saw it. I experienced it. You can go to the widow in Nain and you can say, excuse me, is there anybody here in Nain who had a son who died but was raised by Jesus? And you can meet the guy who died and was raised by Jesus. You can meet all the people. By the way, that's why if you're reading through the Bible and you get to those quote unquote boring parts in the Bible, where it's like a chronology or genealogy or names and places, all of that is there. It's incredibly important because it's there to prove and validate and corroborate what's being said. We talked about it briefly on Good Friday. Simon of Cyrene, whose kids are Rufus and another guy that I don't remember his name. You can go to Cyrene. You can go there. This is what Matthew and Mark and Luke are pleading with you to do. Don't take my word for it. Go. Go to Cyrene. There's a lot of people probably named Simon there, but there aren't going to be many people that have two sons named Rufus and the other guy. There probably aren't going to be many people that know that. And then you can go visit with Simon. You can talk to Simon. Simon will be there. He'll tell you I was the one who carried the cross. There's no way that you can say that this is a legend or a tall tale because it was written in that same generation. So look at all the witnesses we have. The women, the guards, the angels, the disciples, the religious leaders. Even Paul writing 1 Corinthians 15, which we read. If we were to have started earlier, Paul is writing in similar to the same time that Matthew wrote in the early 50s AD. And Paul says that Jesus showed up to him and to other people and he even showed up to 500 people all at one time. And then he adds this note. Most of them are still alive. Some have died, but most are still alive. So they're begging us to corroborate this. They're begging us, go listen to the eyewitnesses. These are historical documents. You might say, well, that's fine, but weren't the people really gullible back then? Didn't they believe in crazy stuff? That's why verse 17 is there. Some worshiped Jesus, but some were doubtful. Some were doubtful. Is it true that somebody could rise from the dead? I don't know if I believe that. Some were doubtful. I think that's a very normal response to doubt this. C.S. Lewis tells us to be careful not to buy into this sense of chronological snobbery. He says, people tend to think that 
the older generations, because they were older, were dumber than we are? And he asks, are our IQs getting higher? (laughs) They're not. So I don't think that they were any less doubtful or more doubtful than we are. They were doubting because Jesus had been crucified. That's a lingering, agonizing, public, verifiable death. That is not a death that you could potentially live and survive through. And so I would ask you this morning, do you have any doubts that Jesus was raised from the dead? Do you have any? No judgment here because people in the Bible had doubts. Do you have doubts? Do you have doubts about the resurrection? I would ask you to answer that honestly in your heart. Do you have doubts about the resurrection? My next question would be, if you do, totally fine, no judgment here. But if you do, my next question is, be honest, what kind of proof would you need to dispel all of your doubts? Because I think we have some pretty convincing evidence in this text. We have Jewish people who worship a human as God. Jews are the last people in the world that will believe that a human is God. But that's what they're doing. Their doubts were as strong as yours are. And yet the evidence that they received overcame their doubts. We have the women, we have the guards, we have the timing of the writing of this gospel. And then a fourth line of evidence, and there's many lines of evidence for the validity and reality of the resurrection. But the fourth that we'll give just for this morning is the transformed lives of the disciples. The transformed lives of the disciples. They did exactly what Jesus said. And we're going to look at this passage next Lord's day, Lord willing. They went and made disciples, verse 19, of all the nations. They were changed by the resurrection. They died because of the resurrection. And again, I just, I have to ask the question, if this were not true, if they're making all of this up, just think in your mind with some sanctified imagination, how terrible that sales pitch must have been from one disciple to another. I mean, who thought that up? You know what? Up in the upper room, probably Peter, because he's the leader of the disciples. He goes, you know what, guys? I've got a great idea. Jesus died on Friday. We're in the upper room on Sunday. We're terrified and afraid, but I know what can change us. Let's steal his body. Let's hide it somewhere. Let's tell everyone that he rose from the dead and start a religion. And the disciples go, okay, we got nothing better to do. What are we going to get out of this? Let's get some power. Let's get some control. Let's bring in the kingdom. Let's get some money. Let's get some fame. Let's get some fortune. Peter goes, "Uh, no, actually, I think uh, we won't get any money. We'll probably all be jailed at one point and we're going to die brutal, horrific deaths. Who's going to go, oh, I like this plan, right? Who's going to say, yes, let's do that. Let's go steal his body. Nobody's going to do that. And if for some insane reason, the disciples hatch this plot and they actually live it out. One of those disciples, while they were being tortured and killed, would have said charades over. I know where his body is. It's probably decomposing now, but let's go get it. I'll show it to you. I don't want to die this way. This isn't made up. Some people say, well, maybe Jesus didn't actually die. Maybe somebody gave him a drug that made him look dead and he revived in the tomb. My answer would be Roman soldiers knew how to kill people. 
And no disciple would have been fooled by a half-drugged, beat-up Jesus into thinking that he defeated death and ushered in a new kingdom. You might ask, well, maybe the women went to the wrong tomb. And they saw somebody that looked like Jesus. Maybe they saw James, Jesus' half-brother. And I would just say, they would have known soon enough that it wasn't Jesus, right? Jesus, it's you. No, I'm James. Like, that would have been it. We're done. Maybe it was the wrong tomb. Maybe they went to the wrong tomb. Couldn't have been because the women were there with Joseph of Arimathea when his body was taken off the cross and buried in the tomb. It was Joseph's tomb. So if there is an empty tomb and people go, time out, wrong tomb, that's why this is empty because nobody was put there in the first place. Joseph would have gone, no, that's my tomb. Look, the address right there, that's my tomb. There's a seal on the stone that's been rolled away. It's a Roman seal, property of Rome. It's like the caution police tape, right? This is, this is our property. The soldiers in front of the tomb. There's no way it's a wrong tomb. I've heard one person say, I think the religious leader stole his body. What? Think about that for a second. Why would the religious leaders have any desire to steal the body of Jesus? They would be perpetuating the very truth that they want to cover up. That makes no sense. Well, maybe the disciples stole his body. Well, we don't know. We know this didn't happen because they were all in the upper room. They were scared to death. They fled from the guards in the garden of Gethsemane. Why would they now take up arms with newfound courage to storm the tomb and steal the body of Christ now that he's dead? Some people say, well, Jesus only appeared to people who believed in him. This is an important one. People say, well, you know what? I don't believe that he actually rose from the dead because he only appeared to people who believed in him. So they all had this, you know, imagination, vision of Jesus, but the people who didn't believe him never saw him. And I would say not true, biblically not true. Thomas didn't believe Jesus showed up to him. Saul turned into Paul. He definitely didn't believe he was persecuting people who believed in the resurrection. So Jesus didn't just show up to people who believed in him. Some would say, well, lots of people have envisioned someone that they love who has died coming back, appearing in a vision. This is a plausible explanation for what happened. And I would say, no, biblically, we have language that describes that. You remember Acts chapter 12, Peter in prison under Herod, the church is praying for his release. They don't think that it's going to happen. And so when Peter is released and Rhoda, the servant girl says, it's Peter outside the gate. They say, no, it's just his angel or ghost. It's his spirit. He's not alive. He's dead. So yes, we can see some spirit of him, but he's not actually raised from the dead. No one in Acts chapter 12 said, oh, he died, but he's probably been raised from the dead. Nobody said that. So there's language in the Bible. If people thought Jesus was just a spirit, there's language for that. No, he was raised from the dead physically. There's so much more that we could say. But in answering the first question, did this really happen? Did this actually happen? I think that we have a convincing yes. And we have so much more proof than what I've just given. So, the next question, since the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually did happen, what does that mean for us? What does it all mean? Question number two, what does it all mean and I want to give you four consequences of what it means. We have four lines of evidence for why we know the resurrection actually happened. And I want to give you four consequences now that we know that it did happen. 
What effect does it have in our life? We say a lot at our church, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then nothing matters. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, nothing matters. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If he's not alive, don't care about anything. Live however you want because it doesn't matter. You're going to die. That's the end. That's it. But since Jesus has been raised from the dead, nothing else matters but him. How does this change your life? How does the resurrection change your life? It changes everything. If somebody were to give you some priceless piece of art, like they can give you the Mona Lisa, or they can give you the David. Let's say they give you a huge statue. And they say, I want to gift this to you. This is yours. I mean, literally a priceless artifact. And you take it and you go, this is amazing. Where do we put it? We have no room in our house, right? You don't just set the David right in your living room. You have to talk around it. Hey, how's it going? What do we do with this? Nobody would say, oh, thanks for giving it to me. I don't have enough room, so I'm just going to put it in the garage, put a little tarp over it. We'll just put it there. Nobody would do that. You would literally build another house. You would say, okay, let's make a house that has a whole room just for this so that everyone can see it and witness it and enjoy it. I see a lot of Christians who say, resurrection is great, so cool. We'll put it in the garage, cover it with the tarp. We'll bring it out on Easter. We'll gaze at it and we'll put it back. My friends, that's the most insane thing to do with the resurrection. Build a whole new house. Your life has to be completely torn down and rebuilt around this reality. Four consequences for the resurrection. Number one, because Jesus has been raised, we are assured that our sins are forgiven. We are assured that our sins are forgiven. The resurrection is a public demonstration and proclamation that God the Father is satisfied with the payment Jesus made at the cross. We sang it earlier. It was finished upon the cross. If Jesus had stayed dead, you cannot say it was finished. Jesus cried out on the cross on Friday, it is finished. And on Sunday, when God the Father raised him from the dead, God the Father said, yes, it is. Paid in full. This is why he is declared to be, as Paul says in Romans 1 verse 4, Jesus is declared to be the son of God with power because of the resurrection from the dead. Romans chapter 1 verse 4, Paul says he's declared, that's the Greek word, horizo, the horizon. So literally there is no part of this world that doesn't testify to the reality that God has raised Jesus and Jesus is the Son of God. You can't miss it. Christianity is the only religion where adherence to Christianity go to the burial location of the one that they worship just to see that the tomb is empty. And our faith isn't in vain. As we read in 1 Corinthians 15, our faith isn't in vain. We're not dead in our sins because Jesus has been raised from the dead. John Stott says it this way, quote, he who had been condemned for us in his death was publicly vindicated in his resurrection. The resurrection is God's decisive demonstration that Jesus did not die in vain. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we are assured that our sins are forgiven. No more debt, no more penalty, no more payment. It's been completely satisfied at the cross and we are 
forgiven. Secondly, the resurrection assures us that God loves us. The resurrection assures us that God actually does enjoy, like, and love us. This is why Jesus said in verse 10, go to my brothers. I created a family, Jesus is saying, and this family is a family full of really weird people. And God says, I love them all. Even when they don't believe me, even when they doubt me, even when they turn their back on me, even when they deny me, I love them all. He could have condemned them, but he responds in love. In their waning love for him, his love for them had always been steadfast. But I wonder if you struggle with the concept of God loving you. There's a lot of people that struggle with that idea because they look at God and they say, okay, the God of the Bible is incredibly powerful. He's sovereign. He's king. He created everything. And he's just so far removed from me. He's so big. He's so powerful. It just makes me uncomfortable. And I don't want to submit myself to him. It's like when I hang out with my brother-in-law. Some of you have met him. Some of you know him. He does jujitsu. He's uh, about my height, a couple inches shorter than me, about 100 pounds heavier than I am, all muscle. And we, we do jujitsu together. That's just the biggest joke in the history of the world. He teaches me things. I don't learn them very well. I asked him one time, Jeremiah, how long do you think, if, if we were actually doing this for real, you weren't taking it easy on me, how long do you think it would take you to choke me out? And he said, less than 10 seconds. <laughs> said, thanks, I feel like such a man. Sometimes in those moments I go, well then why am I like trying? Why am I learning? You're so much better than I am. You're so much bigger than I am. I just kind of want to quit. I'm never going to be as good as you are. So I don't really want to try this anymore. So many people do that with Christ. I'm never going to be as as big as you are, as good as you are. You're just so far removed from me that I just quit. I give up. And I would understand that line of argumentation, except for the fact that Jesus says, I'm your friend. I have condescended to become a human. I wear humanity. I am human. I'm one of you. And I'm not ashamed to be called your brother because I love you. J.C. Ryle says, there is something deeply touching in these simple words, my brothers. They deserve a thousand thoughts. Weak, frail, erring as the disciples were, Jesus still calls them brothers. Much as they had come short of their profession, sadly, as they yielded to the fear of man, they're still his brothers, glorious as he was in himself, a conqueror over death and hell and the grave. The son of God is still meek and lowly of heart. He calls the disciples his brothers. So let us turn from this passage with comfortable thoughts. If we know anything of true religion, let us see in the words of Christ, an encouragement to trust and to not be afraid. Our Savior is the one who never forgets his people. He pities their infirmities. He does not despise them. He knows their weaknesses and yet does not cast them away. 
our great high priest is also our elder brother. The resurrection assures us that we are forgiven. The resurrection assures us that God loves us. Number three, the resurrection assures us that we too will be raised from the dead. The resurrection assures us that we too will be raised. This is what we sang earlier. As we will be when he comes, we will be raised. He is the first fruits from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, we will follow in that resurrection pattern. That's why the poet John Donne said, death, be not proud. Death's sting has been removed. Death's victory has been taken away. That's why Paul says in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Death no longer is a thief that steals something from me. Death is a gift that gives me something. It gives me more of Jesus. One day we will put on an imperishable body exchanging this body of corruption with one that will never wear out. Every Easter, I think about Johnny Erickson Tata. When she was 17 years old, she had a diving accident, was paralyzed from the neck down. She talks about a time when everyone at church was kneeling and she couldn't. She just stood out like a sore thumb. She says this quote, sitting there, I was reminded that in heaven, I will be free to jump, dance, kick, and do acrobatics. And sometime before the guests are called to the banquet table at the wedding feast of the lamb, the first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is drop to the ground on grateful, glorified knees and quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus. And then she adds this, I with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone who is spinal cord injured like me? On that day, everything sad will come untrue. God will balance the scales. God will restore the lifeless bodies, the broken hearts, the hopeless and crushed spirits. Because of the resurrection, I know that every tear that we shed, every emotional pain we receive, every heartache that we experience over loss of friends and loved ones, all of those things one day will become a distant memory. Similar to the scars on Jesus's body. The scars will never completely go away but they will never hurt us any longer. Brothers and sisters, resurrection hope flows like lava beneath the crust of daily life. The resurrection assures us that our sins are forgiven. Resurrection assures us that God actually loves us. The resurrection assures us that we too one day will have new resurrected bodies as we are raised from the dead. And fourth and finally, the resurrection assures us that we can be transformed now. We can be transformed now in this life. We can be changed. Romans chapter six, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies and transform you. If Christ has not been raised, you have no hope whatsoever of changing in this life. That sin that you hate, that practice that you despise, that pattern that you are so ready to be done with. You have no hope of conquering that apart from the resurrection. The resurrection changes everything. So what are we to do with that? We know that the resurrection is a historical reality and we know that it changes us. 
So what? What now? What do we do? I would simply say, look to the women. Look to the women. They modeled the exact response to this reality that we should have. Bow down and worship the resurrected Christ and then go tell everyone with joy. In the words of the angel to the women, come and see and go and tell. That's what we should do. That's what you need to do today. Come and see, go and tell. Come to Jesus. There are so many things that might hinder you from coming to him. Think about the women. They might have been afraid of the Romans. They might have been afraid of what others might have thought. They might have been afraid of the future, the unknown. And yet they go to Jesus. Jesus conquered death for you to be able to come to him. And I just plead with you, have you obeyed this invitation that Christ has given, this command that he's given? Come to him and he will give you rest. Come all who are weak and weary and I will give you rest. Come and see, see, see the condescension of Christ. See that he would step out of heaven and come down to earth, live the perfect life that you and I could never live, died the death that you and I deserve, rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. Come see what our sin cost. Look at the horrific nature of our sin. Look at the horrific nature of the death that we deserve and see the reality that one day we all, just like Jesus, will be buried in a location. We will die. There is a day coming when we will no longer be able to make the choice to trust Jesus. The finality of death should make us examine ourselves, but don't stop there. See that the tomb is empty. He is no longer there. He is risen. He's conquered death. And we too will rise with him. Come and see, and then go and tell. Don't linger at the tomb for too long. Don't doubt. Don't have fear. Go receive the life that God has given and then run. Tell everyone that he is alive, that he has been raised from the dead. Come and see and go and tell. Why? Because this really happened. Yes, it did. And yes, this changes everything. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the resurrection. Even now, as we meditate and we contemplate, raise affections for Jesus, raise affections for your son, that we would love him more than we love anything in this world. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our savior. Amen.